This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, this is Tom Switzer from Radio National here. Great to be back on Between the Lines. Now, my thanks to those of you who've sent me lovely messages while I've been away, and a special thanks to Kylie Morris for hosting the show in my absence. Now, today on the program. Taiwan is a thriving democracy, and can the West really stand by and allow China to forcefully incorporate this thoroughly democratic country into its, you know, authoritarian grip by force. That's Malcolm Turnbull. Stay tuned for my chat with the former Prime Minister about the growing tensions between China and the United States and where we in Australia fit in. But first, Ukraine. Well, let's turn to John Mearsheimer, arguably the leading Western critic of the US-led campaign against Russia. He also happens to be the leading intellectual proponent of containment of China. John Mearsheimer is Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago, and he's author of The Tragedy of Great Power Politics. John, welcome back to the program. My pleasure, Tom. Now, you've become something of a YouTube sensation since the February invasion of Ukraine, I think one of your lectures on Russia policy has reached more than 27 million views, extraordinary, 27 million views. And yet you, at least on the issue of Ukraine, you're virtually ignored by the mainstream media, at least across the Western world. Why? Well, I think the answer, Tom, revolves around the question of who is responsible for the war in Ukraine. Uh, the mainstream media in the West, which is deeply Russophobic and also is deeply committed to the Ukrainian side of the conflict, argues that what's going on here is that Vladimir Putin is interested in conquering Ukraine, making it part of a great Russia, and then even restoring the Russian Empire. So the idea in the mainstream media is that Putin alone is responsible for the war. Now, my argument is that that's wrong. My argument is that there is virtually no evidence to support the argument that Putin is ultimately responsible for this war. And in fact, in my story, the West is responsible for this war. And what happened here is that the West, and here we're talking mainly about the United States, decided that they were going to try and make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's borders. They were going to expand NATO eastward, expand the EU eastward, and try and turn Ukraine into a pro-Western democracy. The Russians have made it unequivocally clear since this policy was set in train in April 2008 that this was the brightest of red lines that the Americans and their allies were crossing. Yeah, but the counter-argument here is that Russia threatens Europe, and this is what the Lithuanian president recently warned in the Washington Post, John, when Putin hears people like John Mearsheimer or Western leaders talking about the need for a negotiated settlement and to avoid humiliating Russia, that will just, quote, increase Putin's gamble to world conquest. 
There's no evidence to support this. No evidence that Putin was ever interested in conquering Ukraine and making part of a greater Russia, much less that he was interested in conquering other countries in Europe. He doesn't have the capability. And moreover, there is no evidence that he has the intention. This is a story that's been made up in the West. And uh, I would like to see somebody provide evidence of Vladimir Putin saying what you just quoted, uh, that policymaker from abroad. Yeah, but again, your critics like the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post editorials, virtually all newspaper columnists, past and present government officials, they'd say that Russia, like China, by the way, they want to topple the US-led liberal international order they see a retreating America, and this is their argument, John, that Moscow and Beijing are going to exploit this. Ukraine is just the first target. Well, first of all, Tom, the United States is not retreating. NATO expansion in Europe is evidence that we were moving eastward, and the Russians, until they invaded Ukraine on February 24th, were not moving westward. So we're not retreating in Europe, and we're certainly not retreating in Asia eastwards. People like you, White, have been very fearful that the United States was retreating from its commitments in Asia. The exact opposite is happening. The United States is in China's face in Asia, and the United States is in Russia's face in Eastern Europe. And the end result of this is that these countries are pushing back. Now, you say they're interested in undermining the U.S.-led international order. Of course they are. They'd be crazy not to. The United States is an adversary of both of those countries. And when you get into an adversarial situation like we have today, of course, China and Russia are going to do everything they can to undermine America's position in the world. And at the same time, we're going to go to great lengths to undermine Russia's position in Ukraine and China's position in East Asia. My guest is Professor John Mearsheimer from the University of Chicago, and uh, he just mentioned in passing Hugh White. Of course, he's one of John's sparring partners from the Australian National University. John, 30 years ago, you said that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was, quote, no longer a clear-cut reason for having NATO. But uh, NATO, in recent times, it's announced that it will carry out the biggest overhaul of its collective defence and deterrence since the Cold War. These are the specifics. NATO will raise the number of forces in high readiness to 300,000. That's an almost tenfold increase. It'll enhance its battle groups in eastern member states. This, of course, is your point that uh, America, far from retreating, is is, uh, further expanding eastwards. So doesn't this suggest that NATO has a new lease on life 30 years since the end of the Cold War? Absolutely. It does have a new lease on life. But the question you want to ask yourself are what are the costs for that new lease on life? We have created, we have helped create, we the Americans and our allies, a a multidimensional disaster in Ukraine. And just look at what's happening to Ukraine. It's being destroyed as a country. The economic consequences of this conflict in Europe are significant, and they appear to be getting greater with the passage of time. So there are huge costs here for this resurrection of NATO. And the main point I would make to you, Tom, is that this is an unnecessary conflict. Had the United States not pushed to include Ukraine 
in NATO, had the United States not tried to make Ukraine a Western bulwark on Russia's border, there would be no war in Ukraine today. Ukraine would control the Crimea and it would control the Donbass. What we have done with our efforts to expand NATO eastward is we have forced Putin into a position where he felt that he was facing an existential threat and he had to invade Ukraine, which of course he did. And this has had catastrophic consequences, mainly for the Ukrainians. Yeah, but the Russians have invaded Ukraine. This is Anthony Albanese. He's the Australian Prime Minister. He's not Australia is not even part of NATO. He recently told the Ukrainian leadership that Canberra would support Ukraine against Russia, quote, for as long as it takes. Now, this is the view of a lot of countries across the world. Many Australians, John, support Albanese and his predecessor, Scott Morrison, on this issue because it's widely believed that a tough stance against Russia over Ukraine, that serves as a warning to China over Taiwan. John Mearsheimer. Well, first of all, what supporting Ukraine over the long term is going to do is wreck Ukraine. And furthermore, it's not in Australia's interest to be funneling huge amounts of money into Eastern Europe to support Ukraine in what will ultimately be a disastrous war for Ukraine, when China is the real threat that Australia faces. And in fact, as the war in Ukraine drags on, it becomes more and more difficult for the United States to focus its attention on East Asia, to focus its attention on China. So it is not, from a strategic point of view, or in my opinion, an economic point of view, in the interests of Australia to continue to support this foolish war. But Russia and China have been deepening cooperation. Absolutely. Why wouldn't they? The United States has played a key role in pushing the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. Look, from an American point of view, the principal threat that we face on the planet is China. China is a potential hegemon in East Asia. It is a peer competitor. Russia is not. We have a deep-seated interest in containing China, and we should be working with the Russians to do that. We should have the Russians on our side of the ledger. Instead, what we've done here is we've pushed the Russians into the arms of the Chinese. Both of these countries have a deep-seated interest in doing everything they can to undermine America's position in the world. John, let's elaborate on this balance of power principle because some of our listeners might be confused because on the one hand, you're saying that the US has provoked Russia by expanding security obligations right up to its borders, but you're applying a different logic to China. You support a US-led containment policy towards China. Just elaborate here. What's the difference here? Well, the difference is that Russia is a weak great power. Of the three great powers on the planet, China, the United States, and Russia, Russia is by far the weakest, and it is not a threat to dominate Europe. It can barely win the war in the Donbass, much less even conquer all of Ukraine. The idea that this is some great threat is delusional. China, on the other hand, is a peer competitor of the United States. The United States has a profound interest in pivoting to Asia and doing everything it can to contain China. And it's not doing that because, again, it's bogged down in Ukraine 
in what is going to be a very long war. Yeah, is this why, by the way, the US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan this week, highly controversial, was that justified? Well, I think justified's a, not a good word. The question is, did it make good strategic sense? I think that it was not the right time for Nancy Pelosi to go to Taiwan. I think given the problems that the United States has in Ukraine and given what a difficult political position Xi is in and uh, the problems that we run into if we provoke him at this point in time, it made sense for her not to go to Taiwan. However, having said that, once it became public knowledge that she was thinking about going to Taiwan, there was no way we could back off on that. So I think it was the correct decision on Biden's part to support uh, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. But I think all things considered, it would be better if she had uh, not raised the issue to begin with. And in fact, she had deferred to the White House uh, on whether this made sense or not. I think when you talk about American foreign policy, we need one person running American foreign policy. That's the president of the United States. And the idea that Nancy Pelosi is free to go off and uh, in effect create a major crisis in Taiwan on her own uh, does not make good sense. My guest is Professor John Mearsheimer. You can read his article on the causes and consequences of the Ukraine crisis in the National Interest magazine in Washington. We'll put a link on our homepage. Now, the essay is based on a lecture in Florence recently, which has attracted already more than 2 million views on YouTube. Uh, John, back to this question about you being a YouTube sensation. You've clearly upset the government of Ukraine. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they have listed you among a number of Americans whom Kiev claims have promoted, quote, Russian propaganda. <laughs> yes, uh, I think this is a very foolish move on the part of the Ukrainian government, but they came up with a blacklist of people who they describe as Russian propagandists. And the name of the game here is basically to make it more difficult, if not impossible, for people like me to get our views on the Ukraine war out into the open. Uh, I don't think it's going to work. And uh, I think actually with the passage of time, as people become more and more aware uh, of what a tragedy uh, and what a mistake the Ukraine war uh, is, uh, they'll revisit the question of how we got into it to begin with, and more attention will be paid to my argument. And that brings us to how we reach a ceasefire in Ukraine. Clearly, NATO's top priority is escalating weapons shipments to Kiev and they want to let Ukraine go on the offence. Meanwhile, President Biden has called Putin a war criminal and pressure is mounting on the State Department to declare Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. So, John, how do we reach a ceasefire in Ukraine? I don't think we do. Uh, I think the problem uh, that you described uh, is very important. That is that the Americans are committed to winning this war and they're uh, characterizing Russia as a genocidal state. Those two things make uh, any uh, kind of meaningful ceasefire or peace agreement uh, difficult, if not impossible. But you also want to factor in the fact that the uh, Ukrainians will not reach any agreement that allows the Russians to keep 
territory that they conquered, and the Russians have no interest in giving up any of that territory. And furthermore, the Russians want Ukraine to be a neutral state, and the United States and the Ukrainians uh, find that unacceptable. So for a whole slew of different reasons, uh, it's hard to see how you're going to end this war anytime soon. Your critics would say that Russian military defeats on the ground is the fastest way to reach a settlement and a ceasefire should only be on the table when Putin withdraws his tanks and concedes Ukraine's right to be an independent state. Now, you've made it clear that defeating Russia in any meaningful sense would be difficult. After all, Russia controls, I think it's something like 25% of Ukraine. But just say for argument's sake, John, NATO here succeeds and they convince Russia that the cost of the war will keep growing and that it can't outlast the West. Just say that for argument's sake. What do you suspect happens then? What's the Kremlin's likely response? Well, I think there is a small chance that could happen, Tom. One can never be certain how a war will play out. War is a realm of uncertainty for sure. But uh, I think if the Russians are losing in Ukraine and the sanctions are really biting in Moscow, uh, I think the Russians will do one of two things. Uh, one, I think they may try to wreck the electrical grid work uh, in Ukraine, which would cause devastating damage. Many millions of people would die. And I believe it would not be that difficult to wreck the electrical grid. But the second and more worrisome move they would make in all likelihood is to use nuclear weapons. Uh, it's very important to understand, Tom, that the Russians view what is going on in Ukraine as an existential threat. They think that their survival is at stake. Many people in the West don't agree with that, but it doesn't matter what people in the West think. It's what the Russians think. And the Russians think they're facing an existential threat in Ukraine. And if they are losing that war, the incentives for them to turn to nuclear weapons to rescue the situation will be very great. So I would not be surprised in the circumstances you described if the Russians turned to nuclear weapons, or as I said earlier, if they tried to wreck the electrical grid. Well, on that very grim note, John, thanks as always for being back on the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. John Mearsheimer, he's Professor of Political Science at the University of Chicago. His most recent book is called The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities. Up next, Malcolm Turnbull on rising tensions with the People's Republic of China. Well, although the US Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, it appears to have gone without major incident, the cold hard reality is this. US-China relations over the island democracy, they're unlikely to ease. And if the two superpowers continue to lock horns, then the strategic competition will obviously affect the rest of the region. Now, in recent years, Australia's stance towards China has hardened considerably since the Tony Abbott era. This was when Canberra and Beijing elevated their relationship to what was called a comprehensive strategic partnership on the back of a free trade deal. So what could the fallout of deteriorating Sino-American relations be for Australia? 
At a time, remember, when the US is focused on helping Ukraine defeat Russia. Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister of Australia from 2015 to 2018, and he's been Federal Liberal Leader twice. Malcolm Turnbull, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with you. Now, what did you make of Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? Well, so far it hasn't resulted in an outbreak of hostilities, so that's a good thing. But I can understand why quite a few people in Washington were hoping that she would not do it. The Pelosi trip is testing the 50-year-old One China policy to the limit. She says uh, she's just uh, reflecting America's determination to preserve democracy and security. That's her reason for visiting, but this angers Beijing. Well, of course it does, yes. And the question is whether the risk of escalate, well, the, the certainty of increased tensions and the risk of kinetic outcomes, conflict of one kind or another, are justified by the visit. So was this visit worth it? That, that, that will be the question, and I guess that will be judged with the benefit of hindsight. So Yeah, but there are those like uh, your successors, uh, your predecessors, Paul Keating and Kevin Rudd, they say this was the wrong time to visit, but they can't tell us when would be a right time that Beijing would tolerate. It's really a question of the status of the visitor. So an Australian Prime Minister would not contemplate visiting Taiwan as Prime Minister, but a former Prime Minister certainly could. Uh, Tony Abbott has done so. Uh, I've been invited to Taiwan. Uh, I've not visited Taiwan yet, but only it was only COVID that stopped me going. And I've uh, been engaged in quite a lot of cooperation and work with Taiwan or to Taiwanese institutions in work we're doing with an international commission on health resilience in the wake of the COVID pandemic. It's like all of these things, Tom. It's a question of degree and finesse and nuance. And I, you know, my judgment would have been if Nancy Pelosi had asked me for my advice, I would have said probably better not to go. But equally, I can understand why she did. Now, when Taiwan became independent in the 90s, uh, and it is now a very vibrant, uh, independent, in, in a democratic country, there was the hope that as China became more prosperous, it would liberalise politically mm. and Taiwan and China would come together naturally. And, you know, one country, two systems would operate as as they were then operating with Hong Kong. The couple of things have changed since then. One is China has become more prosperous and stronger, but in fact has become less liberal and more authoritarian, mm -hmm. both at home and abroad. Number two, uh, the pro idea of one China, two systems has been completely demolished by the uh, crackdowns in Hong Kong. Uh, and number three, Taiwanese people... Mm us increasingly seeing themselves as Taiwanese. And they, you know, younger people, you know, 50s and below, uh, overwhelmingly see themselves as a separate country. They don't see themselves as being part of China. So they've got a very different perspective to the old Kuomintang. Mm. So the difficulty that the United States and her allies face now is that there's no prospect of a peaceful reunion. The reunification of Taiwan with the mainland is 
absolutely fundamental, cherished goal of the Communist Party, and in particular its its leader, Xi Jinping. But at the same time, Taiwan is a thriving yeah. democracy, and can the West really stand by and allow China to forcefully incorporate this thoroughly democratic country into its, you know, authoritarian grip by force? The fundamental problem now is, is Taiwan defensible? Is Taiwan able to defend itself against China? Well, not by itself, obviously. And is America and her allies prepared to come to defend it? And if they do, are they able to prevail? My guest is the former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm, I'm reading a very good book at the moment called Australia's China Odyssey, From Euphoria to Fear. It's written by the distinguished Sydney University historian James Curran. And among other things, he reminds readers that in 2010, so this is five years before he became Prime Minister, you were particularly struck by Henry Kissinger's observation in his book on China that year. And this is the quote, when the Chinese view of preemption encounters the Western concept of deterrence, a vicious cycle can result. This is Kissinger. Acts conceived as defensive in China may be treated as aggressive by the outside world. Deterrent moves by the West may be interpreted in China as encirclement. So bearing Kissinger's observation in mind, and you were struck by that 12 years ago, where does Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan fit into this theory of an escalation towards war? Well, it will certainly be seen in Beijing as an escalation. There's no question about that. It, it's Nancy Pelosi's visit was designed to reinforce both in Taiwan and in the United States a commitment, an American commitment, to support Taiwan uh, against forcible incorporation into the People's Republic. That 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 you know she gave a pledge of continuing support in the uh, Taiwanese Parliament. But I mean, you've got to recognise that Nancy Pelosi, while she is third in line to the presidency, if the president and the vice president, you know, were were killed or died together, she. Nonetheless, however, she is likely to lose that position in the next congressional elections to be held in November this year because the Republicans will take over the House. So she's yeah. not she's not actually speaking for the government or acting for the government in a sense of the executive government. And, and let's be frank, relations with China have deteriorated well before this trip. Now, That's during true. your tenure as Prime Minister, so this is from 2015 to 2018, Canberra had its famous reset with China, but your critics, Malcolm Turnbull, they say you poked the eyes of our largest trade partner. Although the policy substance on foreign interference laws and the 5G network, they were fine, your critics, James Curran's one of them, another one's Bob Carr, the former foreign minister, they say the policy articulation was not and the result was that China was angry. In other words, Australia under your leadership infuriated Beijing, Malcolm Turnbull. I don't accept that, and I think that you've got to recognise that the indignation and anger from Beijing is always instrumental. You know, it's always designed to achieve a purpose, and you know, and the purpose is what generally one of intimidation. And Australians, who, you know, want to knuckle down to 
in the face of fury from Beijing, to use a kind of tabloid headline, are really just just playing into Beijing's plans, frankly. You've got to be honest about that. Okay. Uh, I mean, look, let, 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 let's be quite clear. The, the, the thing that they're talking about, they're saying, they're complaining that in when I gave, introduced the foreign interference and foreign influence legislation. Late 2017. Yeah, I made the point in 2017 that when Mao Zedong founded modern China, he had said uh, the Chinese people have stood up and that was an expression of sovereignty. And I made the point there that just as China prizes its sovereignty, so does Australia. And so the Australian people say we stand up and that that was our foreign influence and foreign interference legislation was uh, an expression of our asserting our right to sovereignty. Now, I'd, I'd use those words more or less in speeches going back for, for years. Going I mean, back to I the Republic a, days. I go, yeah, and I gave, I gave a speech... Uh, about China, quite a well-reported speech, a long speech in London in 2011, in which I made exactly the same point. So it was yeah, But the point here new. is that your comments drew a hostile response from Beijing. But so what? I mean, yes, of course, but I mean, I, I understand they did, Tom, but the question is not that they drew a hostile response. The question is, was the hostile response reasonable? Now, if a Chinese leader had stood up and quoted George Washington or Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson, do you think that the <laughs> Americans would lose their mind over it? Of course not. Okay. I mean, now, here's another is, question it, for it you. Is, it, it, let, 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 me, yep. let, me cut, let me cut from here to the future. Now, you to the present, you may say, one may say, and other, some people have, that uh, Scott Morrison was injudicious calling for a independent inquiry into the origins mm. of the COVID virus. Mm. I can understand people saying, you know, and I we all recognise this nuance and timing and all other things. I can understand people saying there wasn't really a lot to be gained by saying that at that time. And that's an interesting debate, sort of. But what was completely over the top was the Chinese mm. reaction to it. Mm. I mean, the reality is if... Uh, it was Maurice Payne who actually said it. But if Maurice Payne had said that and it had been ignored in Beijing, you know very well as a journalist, it would have sunk without trace. If they had said something like, oh, yes, we note that and no doubt the World Health Administration will have a, a you know, conduct an investigation in due course with which we'll uh, cooperate, it would have been two pars on page 70. Uh, the only thing that made that statement news newsworthy was the ferocious reaction to it. And it was just completely counterproductive. This controversy raises a very important issue here, though, because China has been striking back at Australia ever since this period mm. with, mm. Uh, you know, tariffs on, on our exports. Question, just as the Europeans have been clearly unwisely too dependent on Russia... Uh, for fossil fuels, have we in Australia been too dependent on China for trade and higher education? Well, the, the, you're talking about a whole bunch of things put together. I mean, the reality is we have a massive trading relationship with China. China speaks for about a third of all of our exports. 
and that is, you know, there's a lot of dependency there. But remember, Tom, the dependency goes two ways. Look, Australia is the best country in the world, and we're the best people in the world. You know, I'm a I'm an Australian. I've got no other no other affiliation. But we are sometimes incredibly defensive and self-critical. I mean, we say, oh, we're so dependent on China to buy our iron ore. Well, hang on. From their point of view, they would say, we're so dependent on the Australians to buy the iron ore. You know, I mean, trade is a two-way street. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the idea that we should somehow or other assume that all of our economic relationship with China is some kind of charitable gift from China to Australia for which we should be grovelingly grateful is ridiculous. My guest is Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister. Let's turn to the United States quickly. America is entering a period of stagflation, so this is a combination of low growth, soaring inflation, public satisfaction with President Biden and the Congress, they're at record lows, violence, shootings, they're rife across US cities, polarisation in Washington, as you well know, it's exceedingly toxic. There's even talk of a Donald Trump comeback. To what extent should we in Australia, given that we have such a close security alliance with Washington, to what extent should we be worried about America's crisis of confidence? Well, we have to be very worried and very alert to it. I mean, it's only a few years ago that Donald Trump was canvassing America pulling out of NATO and was shaking up every single alliance around the world. So, you know, we have been used for many years for while American foreign policy in our part of the world being broadly consistent between Republican and Amer- and uh, Democrat administrations. And we'd all like to believe that will be so. But, you know, I have to say that Australians are much more complacent about the future of American politics and government than Americans are. In other words, there is a sort of a a sort of cheerful insouciance in Canberra that everything will be right. You know, I mean, she'll be right, mate, is one of our great (laughs) national sayings. But the problem is it may not be right at all. I mean, we have to remember that the Republican Party, which is, you know, the one of the two parties of government, uh, has basically become in large part a subsidiary of Donald Trump Mm. who actively sought to overthrow the constitutional government of America in January uh, 2021. I mean, fact, there's no question about that. And and you have got in the Republican Party a requirement, uh, if you want to stay elected, to endorse Trump's ludicrous fiction, ludicrous but dangerous fiction, that Joe Biden stole the election. Now, if Trump comes back, and he easily could, or if somebody else with Trumpian characteristics comes back as president in two years' time, who knows what will happen? I mean, if you read Josh Rogan's book, about US-China relations, you can see that Trump was all for doing a deal with China. I mean, I banned Huawei, in a, when I say I did, my government did, obviously, but the decision that we took was one taken off our own bat after our own very careful technical analysis, having tried to find a way of mitigating the risk, 
We did not do so at the direction of Washington at all. And at the same time, Trump was was canvassing the prospect of allowing Huawei to continue its operations in America as part of a deal with China. Now, that's, this is all documented. So, so, you know, the America that we've got used to, the predictable, not completely predictable, but, you know, the, yeah. the consistent America is something over which there is now a question mark. Well, given all these challenges and weaknesses that you highlight, are you confident in US staying power in Asia? The, the answer is yes, uh, I'm confident, but I'm not, I, you know, I wouldn't, it, it's not 100% certainty. I mean... Is there some truth to Hugh White's arguments that in the wake of America's departure, we in Australia need to do more for our own defence in the face of a rising China? Well, I think Hugh is right in saying we should, we need to do more in terms of our own defence and we certainly should be... Um, not putting, you know, we should not be putting all our eggs in one basket. We should, as I used to say when I was PM, instead of seeing strategic, you know, matters in this area as a series of spokes leading into a hub in Beijing or a hub in Washington, we've got to seek see it more as a mesh, you know, interlocking relationships with great powers, with middle powers, give us the security, as Keating used to say, not from Asia, but in Asia, hence you know, the way I developed our relations with uh, Indonesia, um, Philippines, Japan, Singapore, and so forth, um, or, you know, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, keeping that alive. It was all part of that approach. Part of my foreign policy was developing, building a much stronger strategic relationship with France, which, of course, is all built on trust. Submarine deal was part of that. Uh, Morrison blew that all up. I mean, staggering, staggeringly, staggeringly so. Uh, you know, we need more friends, more allies, more relationships with like-minded countries, and we just should not have all of our eggs in the American basket. I'm not saying we should have none of our eggs in the American basket, and I'm not saying, as Hugh White does, that, you know, we should essentially just, you know, accustom ourselves to the fact that we're, you know, going to be you know, living in a under a Chinese uh, hegemony in uh, this hemisphere, but I do think we need to keep our options open and have as many like-minded friends and build those relationships both in our region and elsewhere, so that we're stronger. You know, it you 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 get more. You have greater strength if you have more uh, alliance relationships, and you can as I say, build that mesh rather than just rely on one spoke going into Washington. That was Malcolm Turnbull, the former Prime Minister and Federal Liberal Leader. Up next, Jennifer Hewitt and Jacqueline Maley on federal politics. Well, Parliament has been in session during the past fortnight, the first sitting weeks since the May federal election, which saw Anthony Albanese's Labor Party come to power. It's been a big week in Parliament with the passage in the House of Representatives of the climate legislation. Now, to review the state of Australian politics, let's turn to our panel. Jennifer Hewitt is the National Affairs Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Jenny, welcome back to the show. 
Pleasure to be here. And Jacqueline Maley is a columnist at The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi there, Jacqueline. Hello, Tom. Now, let's start with The Voice. Now, the new PM will put a yes or no question to a referendum to create an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. This will make recommendations on Aboriginal issues to Parliament. Jenny, is the big challenge here the lack of detail? Well, I think that is going to be a problem um, for the government. Uh, on the other hand, if there are the more detail there is, uh, that also creates its own problems. So I think despite the optimism about this and the enthusiasm for it, I'm not sure. I think without um, without bipartisan support, and that is at this stage still looking dubious despite the support of Julian Lisa, the uh, opposition spokesman, you know, it, it's going to be difficult, I think, even though I think there's a general general enthusiasm for the idea in the Australian community. Tony Abbott has made the point that at May's general election, more Indigenous people entered Parliament than at any one time, 11 Aboriginal MPs and Senators. Now, with Indigenous people so well represented in both the House and the Senate, and they were elected, of course, without quotas, Jacqueline, what's the point of a separate Indigenous voice to Parliament? MPs um, and senators are elected to parliament to represent their constituencies. I mean, they're not represent just because those members happen to be Aboriginal people doesn't mean that they carry with them the weight of representing all Aboriginal people across Australia. I mean, the voice um, to parliament has a pretty specific purpose. We it's not well defined at the moment. There's still a lot of detail to be worked out, but it's been made quite evident that the intention for it is um is different to those who are just representing their communities. So, I mean, it's supposed to be a particular sort of consultative voice on legislation that affects Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So um, I don't really buy that argument. I've seen it made by Tony Abbott and others, but I, it doesn't really ring true for me. Jenny, you mentioned the divisions in the Liberal Party uh, and clearly the spokesperson for uh, the Attorney-General, Julian Lisa, is a supporter of The Voice. Now, Jacinta Nambajimba-Price, she's the new CLP senator in the Northern Territory. She's my guest next week. She maintains that, among other things, practical improvements in the lives of the most disadvantaged Indigenous Australians, they should come well before any Indigenous voice. Many people are attracted to her argument. They'll say that Canberra here is once again putting too much focus on symbolic reconciliation and less on practical ways to fix the appalling Indigenous on Indigenous violence in remote communities that Senator Price raised in her maiden address. To what extent will the prices in the Parliament sink the voice? Well, I think, you know, Senator Price makes a very, very powerful argument. I think the problem is that people, though, have been, you know, Aboriginal communities have been dealing with this and the rest of Australia has been trying to grapple with it uh, and governments over decades without um, any substantial improvement at all. I mean, and that's one of the issues that goes to the idea of the voice. Of course, if you say, well, and, and obviously there's great support for it in the Aboriginal community to say we need a voice uh, to advise on issues affecting uh, Indigenous Australia. Well, of course, all issues uh, affect Indigenous Australia. I'm not quite sure how naturally they do. There's also a lot of advice that goes to government um, on these issues, including from um, Indigenous communities. Now, you can, I suppose you can always make it better. But that's going to be the conceptual difficulty, I think, saying 
it, it will just be a body that can give advice, all right, well, and what does that actually translate into? Because there's been lots of good intentions. There's been billions and billions of dollars spent um, every year on trying to improve conditions without kind of much effect. So I suppose you could argue, well, what harm is it going to do? But it, it may be harder to see what practical effect it has. And carrying this referendum, it will be a monumental task. Get a lot of these figures. Since Federation in 1901, Labor governments have put 25 referendums for 24 defeats. And its one victory was in 1946 when Ben Chifley was Prime Minister. So doesn't all this justify a frank debate that's so far missing? Jacqueline. I think. I mean, I think that you know the prime minister is at least saying at this point that he does want to have a frank debate, and he, you know, he sort of said earlier in the week that there wouldn't be too much detail before the referendum question was put, and he seems to have walked that back and said there will be detailed um, legislation, possibly even draft legislation about what the model will look like. We we had a attorney general George Brandis, or former attorney general George Brandis, I should say, um, writing for us in our paper this week, and he did make the point that it would be very tempting for the opposition to put everything, politically, to put everything it had into torpedoing the voice um, and this this legislation or the referendum because Anthony Albanese has gone out of his way to sort of tie his political fate to it and has made it really clear that his prime ministership, this will be sort of a marquee thing for him. So if they want to pull down his prime ministership, it would be politically expedient for them to sort of to torpedo to torpedo this idea. So I think that was actually a pretty resonant argument and, um, you know, the political risk is there for Anthony Albanese. My guests are Jacqueline Maley from The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald and Jennifer Hewitt from the Australian Financial Review. Now, the new government's other big priority, net zero, that will get through the parliament now that the Greens will support the legislation. That is specifically 43% emissions reduction target by 2030. Many people claim this means the end of the so-called climate wars. Jenny, what about the very real risks to Labor's decarbonisation agenda? If you look at the US experience, fossil fuel plants are closing much faster than green alternatives can replace them. And the upshot is that producers of oil and gas, they can't keep up with a surge in demand. It's arguably the worst energy crisis in nearly five decades. So the question here is, is Labor here striking the right balance? Well, I think it's, it is um, striking the right balance so far. But what it's done, I mean, I, and I think you see that in the support generally from the business community to kind of get more certainty up about what our targets are going to be um, because with the, 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 the move to renewables is is inevitable, but it it is also um, full of uh, bumps and twists and crevasses, as we've seen um, over this winter and will continue to see where everybody was saying, oh, well, nobody really wants, you know, oil and gas anymore. And, of course, that is completely not true. And at the same time, technology uh, advances are nowhere near um, being able to provide uh, the alternatives for firming power at scale, you know, whether it's pumped hydro or, or batteries or everything. So uh, I think in a sense, everybody thinks, oh, look, this is a great idea to have targets, um, but actually working out the detail of how to get there, not just in the electricity sector, but, you know, in agriculture, in transport, in manufacturing, none of that has been kind of thought through, I suppose. And I always, I mean, it's a bit like... Um, 
the issue with uh, the the voice. I mean, it, people like the general idea, um, but then once the difficulties of actually putting it into practice, um, it becomes the, the symbolism is is the kind of the easy part to begin with. And the ACCC warns that Australia could face an alarming, that's the word, alarming gas shortfall in 2023. Jacqueline, should we be concerned of a substantial risk of the nation's energy security? That was alarming to hear the ACCC use the word alarming (laughs) this week because they're a pretty conservative body usually. I I mean, obviously the government is really, really hardening its language on the gas supply uh, issue. I think the interesting thing that the sort of the gas supply crisis has shown us, if, you know, the government hasn't been particularly good at exploiting this, is that it sort of makes renewable energy such as it is look a lot more secure than other forms of energy. I mean, you know, a renewable uh, uh, energy grid that's that's based or at least um, more aligned on renewable power doesn't have to worry about psychopath, um, you know, dictators on the other side of the world holding everybody to ransom with um, with the gas supply. It can be a patriotic um, source of um, energy because, you know, we can, we can make it in Australia or at least process it in Australia. There are upsides to it. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Jenny. It's going to be, it's sort of like, you know, we, it feels like we've gotten to the end of a finish line almost by at least legislating these emission targets. But actually, it's just the beginning and it's going to be mm. really rocky. And I think there'll be a lot of arguments about how, how we get there. And just the other point on, on that is, uh, despite what the ACCC said about the shortage, it's actually really price. It's not. It's not a shortage. Um, that estimate by the uh, HCC was only if all of the non-contracted gas um, from the big LNG exporters in Queensland was exported, 100% of it. Well, actually, they don't export that. And uh, it, but what they do do is say that it, they will, you know, provide it at, at competitive prices. Well, the trouble is competitive prices worked really well when prices were falling dramatically and people were kind of turning away from uh, fossil fuels like, you know, gas and coal. But, but of course, as the economy has recovered, the global economy has recovered from COVID and is opening up, well, um, th- that's where the price has, has soared, um, you know, compounded, but but not was not only due to, um, to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So this is a continuing issue. And talking about soaring prices, that brings us to rising inflation and rising interest rates. Now, it's 9% already in the US inflation and in the UK. Here it's 6%, but it's likely to increase to 7.75% by Christmas. We haven't seen these levels in decades. Jacqueline, the RBA, obviously like other central banks, they're tightening monetary policy. I think we've had a a 1.5% increase in the past three months with more hikes on the way. But is the new treasurer, Jim Chalmers, is he also prepared to make significant spending cuts to help rein in inflation? Well, we certainly haven't seen any indication of that so far. So if he is, he's keeping his intentions pretty pretty quiet. Um, I mean, this is what happens, I suppose, when you have two political parties that both went to the election with really no substantial agenda or policy for reform, certainly none for tax reform. And so while the Labor government's sort of hit the ground running in a few respects, it doesn't have any plans that we know of on tax reform uh, or on, as you say, on sort of budget repair. More generally, they, they've talked a lot about the difficulty um, of, you know, the the, the debt that we're carrying and the sort of the difficulty of the budget position. So maybe they're softening the Australian public up um, to do something 
if not in this budget, then in their next budget. But I, I don't think we'll see anything substantial in, in the coming budget in terms of cuts or reform. Well, how long, uh, Jenny Hewitt, how long can Labor keep blaming the previous government for the, the debt and, and inflation mess when my sense is that Labor actually advocated even more fiscal support during COVID than the Morrison government was willing to provide? Well, yes, that's um, correct. They did, and they wanted a job keeper, for example, to to go uh, longer and to more people. Uh, their line that uh, you know that you've got a, a trillion dollars of debt with nothing to show for it, of course, um, is the one that they want to register with the public. You know that is not true because, of course, there is you know record low unemployment, um, or you know uh, you know there's lots of benefits that that have come from that spending. But the question now is that combination of loose monetary policy and loose fiscal policy meant we're now in this kind of inflation mess. Um, I'm not sure. uh, I I do think it's a kind of predictable thing that Labor's going to blame um, the coalition. But the longer we get out from the election and and really kind of from, I think, from the budget on, it's going to be very, very hard for them to keep harking back and blaming everything that's happening um, on the former coalition government. And I, I just think it's going to be quite a difficult time. They just have to hope that that combination of interest rates and coming up is actually going to do the job mm. for them. Mm. Um, but but given that they um, campaigned on cost of living increases, it's um, and 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 the fact that r- real wages had to go up, well, that's you know the opposite is going to happen. Jenny, Jacqueline, great to have you back on RN. Thanks for having great me. Great to Tom. be here. That was Jennifer Hewitt from the Australian Financial Review and Jacqueline Maley from the Age and Sydney Morning Herald. Well, that's it for the program. And remember to hear this or past episodes, including my colleague Kylie Morris's recent segments on tropical forests, homelessness, and the dangerous world of outer space, go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free. Listening to podcasts, I find, while you're on your morning walk, it's a stimulating way of starting the day, isn't it? I'm Tom Switzer and hope you can tune in again next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.